Welcome everybody. It's been a while since I have done a chat with anyone, so it feels really good to be here. Um, I've been super busy with school, and not to mention it's kind of been a dry spell uh, finding anyone to talk to lately. So if you know anyone that enjoys these type of discussions, please uh, send them to the Discord, send them an invite. Anyone is welcome to the Discord. So. Um, Today, my guest name is Chris. Uh, he's another uh, person that I've met at school. And if I remember right, Chris is a chemistry major with a minor in philosophy. Um, and he he kind of considers himself an unaffiliated Christian. Uh, we can get into exactly what that is. So welcome, Chris. How are you doing? Hello, hello. I'm doing good. Did I get your major right? I I forgot to ask, double check with you. Yes. Close. It's a, it's a chemistry education major. Okay. So, yeah. Basically, you got it right. But yeah, you got the philosophy minor right. But specifically, you're, you're wanting to teach. Hello, hello. I'm doing oh, good. Oh, shit. Did I get your major right? I, Hold on. I forgot. <laughs> you're wanting to teach. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. That you're wanting to teach uh, chemistry is the plan. Cool. All right. Well, um, if you wouldn't mind just kind of starting us off and giving, you know, somewhat of a brief background of your religious upbringing and then where you stand now as far as your beliefs go. Yeah, yeah. OK, let's go for that. So having been born in Utah, I was actually raised LDS for pretty much my entire life. Okay. Um, but it wasn't until later in life that I really started critically assessing a lot of my beliefs. And that's around the time that I actually really started getting into philosophy, particularly existentialism and things like that. And it just led me to kind of look more and more into, do I, do, do I want to believe that there is a God? Do I, do I, uh, do I believe that there isn't one? So I really started asking myself a lot of these hard existential questions and it it plays a lot into into subjects like abs the absurd where it's i i found i found um that i that religion had to be a, a good answer for a lot of these gaps in existentialism and that's kind of where i decided hey well maybe i should find a religion that fits reality the best way that I can. And after looking at a bunch of different ones, I ended up settling back into Christianity. Even uh, by, And I could have easily also settled into things like Buddhism. I liked a lot of things that the Buddhists have to offer, as well as, as, well as uh, all sorts of... Uh, even, even considered like... Uh, Catholicism, Judaism, but ultimately just ended up finding I disagreed at one point or another that that point didn't necessarily line up with what I could see as reality. 
So that's why I gradually ended up becoming more unaffiliated. It's more accurate to say that I'm that it's kind of born out of skepticism, if you would. Okay. So when it comes to the LDS faith, um, kind of sounds like your skepticism of the, I guess, empirical reality of the claims that Joseph Smith was writing about, is that kind of what caused you to not buy into that anymore? Yeah, that's a lot of it, is that there's a lot of, like, empirical evidences that I... That, that, that really led me into questioning a lot of my beliefs. Uh, now, I still do consider that Joseph Smith was a theological genius, but <laughs> prophet of the Restoration, that's where I'll start to question things. So, do you, do you say that just because he was able to, like, spin a really good story and whatnot? Well, I feel like he brought up a lot of a lot of points about a lot of gaps in Christianity. Um, so, for instance, uh, especially when it comes to things like heaven and hell. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting because, um, <laughs> you know, my, my wife calls me a Mormon simp all the time because I tend to argue that their notion of heaven is the most compassionate version of the heaven-hell that I've heard in, in Christianity, you know, essentially hardly anyone really goes to hell, right? There's just a, a lesser kingdom. Yeah. What I like about it is that every, everybody in the end ends up where exactly they want to be. Yeah. Uh, because the, the criteria as, as to who goes where is clearly outlined. And ultimately it's just wherever people end up in the end, that's the place that they will be happiest. Yep. So I guess, do you, would you say that's kind of influenced some of your thinking now about how you view heaven and hell? Yeah, that's generally my, the, the part that I will disagree with most other Christians on is the idea of heaven and hell. So for instance, I will, uh, one, one point, one of my criticisms of heaven, at least your, your general Christian heaven is that there's no suffering in heaven, which mm. I consider wrong even from a biblical standpoint. The reason why is that there are many instances in the Bible where God suffers despite being in heaven. Huh. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, I guess before we get into your theology too much, I, I did want to ask as well, because you kind of said the... The empirical reality is somewhat what uh, took you off of the path of Mormonism. Um, would you say that, I guess, you're pretty confident in, I guess, the resur the resurrection in general? Because I know there's a lot of people who make um, good arguments for the resurrection. Like, even... I don't know. I what What are your thoughts on the resurrection? Like, how confident... Or what arguments, I guess, would you use to someone who's skeptical of it? So, like, uh, that one day, one day we'll all be brought back into the flesh? Oh, sorry. Oh, actually... No, I, I mean the resurrection of Jesus. Oh, like, oh like, the resurrection of Jesus. Oh, I've okay, heard a lot of different... Yeah, yeah. 
that's actually uh, a lot of things that I've, I've, I've examined, like, even when I was looking into criticisms of Christianity in general to try to uh, decide that is Christianity at all even right for me? That's one of the that's one of the things is like how do we know that like was Jesus even a real person or was he not? And that right. all I've decided was is going to have to come down to come down to faith. Okay. Is do I have faith that the little details happened or do um uh, because does the over overarching theology kind of line up with how I how I see or how I have faith that reality will go? If I'm making sense, yeah, that makes sense. Because you know, there's like a lot of Christian apologists and whatnot that I'll listen to where they like they do admit that they have faith, but on the on the other hand, they they work diligently to actually try and make good arguments and uh, evidence for the resurrection. Um, but you're kind of just yeah, in I, the faith camp. Yeah, I honestly just really don't know how much, uh, really all, all of the evidences. I've looked at some of them. I've looked at others that criticize those uh, those arguments. Um, as far as like a lot of the events that happen in the Bible, I generally... And this has actually really helped to kind of quantify my beliefs is I'll either look at an event being um, mythology, meaning something like, especially in the Old Testament, like Noah and the Flood, Adam and Eve, all of these things. I look at them at, as mythology, something that probably most likely didn't ever happen, right. but maybe there's some kind of lesson I'm supposed to learn in it. Uh, the other thing will be legends. This is stories like uh, George Washington and the Cherry Tree, where they're featuring real people, but the story probably never happened. Right. And this is where you get more into more into guys like uh, like Israel. And then the last one is scripture, where it's directly telling you, "Hey, this is something that you should you should do. This is something that you should remember. This is something you should learn. Okay. And it's kind of like a direct lecture to you. So that's generally how I quantify the different beliefs. Um, so I'm getting off on a tangent. Yeah. What were we talking about? <laughs> no, that's, that's, uh, I see why you don't necessarily fall in line with any sex or denominations. Cause yeah, you, I feel like your view on this already seems way more fair to me than most versions of it that I've ever heard of. Um, you brought up specifically the legends thing and I've, I've never really heard that. I've only heard, you know, it's either mythology or straightforward scripture, but the legend thing makes a lot of sense. Cause yeah, you, there's just stories about people kind of passed down. So I, I guess would it be would it even be a issue to you if the resurrection didn't literally happen but it was actually just part of a allegory of a lesson taught as a metaphor i guess even then yeah it's um i don't think it was an allegory i do think it was something that actually happened like i said right. there's a lot of there's a lot of faith that goes into that um 
but I could I could kind of see it allegorically because it is used in the Bible to teach a lot of lessons, particularly with characters like Thomas. Um, okay. It, where where it shows that hey, uh, it, it teaches a lesson about faith that you don't necessarily need to you, you don't need to necessarily see to have faith in something, and that that's. Um, that sightless faith can actually lead to um, more blessings. And see what the, the what I took that as philosophically is, and it has a lot to do with like um, uh, like the David Hume's inquiry concerning human understanding. It's actually what I fell back on a lot when trying to decide things like uh, where 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 Christianity fits in my existential beliefs. Is I've kind of come to the conclusion that the human mind is not strong enough to comprehend the weight of our reality. It's simply just a flawed organ that just doesn't have the power. So that's where I feel like maybe maybe faith is then something that's required that we kind of have to have simply because we don't have the ability to know everything. You know. I'm glad you brought up David Hume. Um, it's interesting that like existentialism has played a, and like absurdism you mentioned has played a a role in your faith. Because from my experience so far, I feel like most absurdists or even existentialists are atheists because they think almost at the root of it nothing matters. Um, so that's interesting that you've actually that's actually been a tool for your faith. Yeah, I've actually found that there's there's two there's two I mean I'm sure there's probably another approach that I haven't seen yet. There's kind of two approaches when you're met with uh with met with the absurd and the first is to say that yes, there there must not be a point. It must all be just be some kind of pointless absurd thing, some kind of fluke in the endless possibilities of infinity or you could say that maybe maybe there is a reason behind this which is why i know i've said to you but the god that i believe in is a god that's an author um i don't believe in any sort of god of the gaps or anything like that i believe in a god that this is all this is all towards an end that there is in fact an ends to what all of the um, absurd meanings, if you would. Yeah. Well, and we've, um, we briefly talked about scientific theories and whatnot. I mean, you're, you're wanting to teach chemistry. So I, I, I'm glad you brought up David Hume because do you, I guess, do you put as much weight into empiricism, the scientific method as you do faith are they about equal to you? Is one above the others, as far as being justified? I guess. So the the primary thing I believe in is is yes, empirical proof. If something is shown to me empirically to be true, I will believe it wholeheartedly. Um, the the faith really comes in when I hit hit these the existential limits of that empiricism. That's where you start running into into the absurd. Things like the mind, you know, consciousness, morality, stuff like that. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. The stuff that 
we don't really have um, we we haven't either discovered empirical proof for yet, which I'm hoping we do eventually, <laughs> yeah. um, or or stuff that we probably never will be able to understand, like what what came before the before things like the start of the universe. What happened before then? Did something happen before then? Right. Things empiricism is is going to really struggle to answer. Yeah, well, that's cool. I I like because you mentioned you view God as an author, and that's I don't know. That's leaps and bounds above above so many other religious arguments I've heard. I because it's like it seems like if God is the author of all of this, and He's created a way for us to discover His author, like His works which would be, you know, empiricism, ex experience, scientific method, it's it's like, why wouldn't we base most of our... I don't know. I, am I making sense? Like, God wants us yeah, to like, use our, the tools given to us to discover what he's created, essentially. Yeah, yeah. He's left the book open for everyone to read. Right. And in, sense, in a sense, when you're trying to do things like this, scientific method to understand the word the world you're really coming closer to an understanding of of what what uh, what he's made which is where i kind of see like the absurd corners of our reality that maybe this is him saying that that hey somebody actually had to somebody actually had to had to make this this isn't some pointless thing that happened out of nowhere but rather you should think that, hey, what if what if somebody did start all of this? What if there is a deeper meaning to uh, life, the universe, and everything, and it's not just some um, some absurd happenstance? Yeah, I I think this is a good kind of little segue here because I'd like to get deeper, more metaphysical about what God actually is. Um, things like omni omniscience and stuff like that um but if you wouldn't mind just like I, I know we kind of mentioned how you see hell and whatnot but just the one thing we didn't cover specifically is salvation and specifically for someone like me who's an atheist i mean the the biggest thing in christianity is believe in christ to be saved right so so I'm wondering how you view salvation, especially for someone like an atheist who I I think I'm fairly moral, but people could disagree with that. So a lot of what I believe as far as salvation comes from comes mostly from the uh, from the New Testament, particularly if you uh, a lot a lot of what I draw on is like the parables of Jesus. Um, because I feel like, hey, if he saw it fit to teach in these parables, maybe it's really important that we should really learn and analyze these. So, for instance, uh, when when it comes to I'm losing my train of thought. Sorry, uh, when it comes to uh, comes to things like what do what do we get in heaven? I always draw on the parable of the laborers. So, for instance. Uh, one of the criticisms of Christianity I've heard is that, well, heaven is is built built on inequality, and I would I would agree that some some 
versions of heaven are built on inequality, but I would disagree that that's what heaven is. Uh, because this particular parable uh, talks about these laborers that go out into the fields and they work and they toil and they labor. And then the, the, the master of the field then goes out to grab more laborers throughout the day because he needs more, he needs, he needs, he needs more fault. He needs more, he needs more work. And he does this all the way up until the last hour of the day and says to the guys every time here, come for work for me. I'll pay you in a penny. And it's at the very end that everybody's lining up to get paid. And the people who were laboring last are in the front of the line. And the people that were laboring first are at the back of the line. And they're seeing that the master is paying everybody a single penny. And it get, isn't until they get, and these guys in the, in the back of the line, they're seeing these guys getting paid a penny. Like, oh man, are we going to get, are we going to get more? Are we are we going to get more of this reward until it's their turn and they also get paid a penny? Mm-hmm. So it's so to me that's one thing about salvation is salvation is equal for everybody. It doesn't okay. matter if you've been a Christian all your life. It doesn't matter if you're on, on if you're on your deathbed all of a sudden repentant. It's salvation is the same. In the end, your reward is the same. It's a penny. What a, what about someone who doesn't repent on their deathbed? Like if I just died instantly, had no no chance to ever truly accept Christ or repent and whatnot. Well, that's where that, that's where I actually that's where I believe. Like I was saying earlier, with Joseph Smith being a theological genius, is he recognized this as a gap in Christianity. In that, well, what if what if somebody was never even Christian at all, um, and then and then they and then they died? It's like, what are just just because they're not Christian and they never even knew it existed at all? Now they're now they're just sentenced to burn in the pits of hell <laughs> for all eternity, and it's yeah. it, it's completely unjust, right? In my in my eyes, um, I I believe. But yes, that there has to be a chance, even even after we pass away, to say hey, uh, for to say hey, this is how things really are. And I feel like a lot of that's even going to happen with me. Um, I pass away, I get to whatever afterlife might exist, and I'm told, hey, this is how things actually are. Either way, I'm probably going to be like, oh, this is neat. This is a this is a neat little adventure I'm going on here. But um, uh, which yeah, well, am I off on another tangent? <laughs> no, yo, you're good. I um, if you ha- if you haven't noticed, I the way I like to do these types of conversations is I I really like to do kind of I guess what you'd call an internal critique. So I really just kind of assume your worldview, and I'm just like in it with you talking about it. So I was. I was going to say, like, I agree with it within your framework. I agree with all of your reasoning. Like to me, if God, if God sent his son to die for all of humanity's sins, then he did just that. Right. There's no questions asked. He, he came here and sacrificed in order to save 
all the humans, I suppose. So, yeah, I, it doesn't make sense to me that some people just wouldn't have that chance simply because, you know, they weren't convinced of of his existence and whatnot. Um, and, and another thing that I agree with you on is kind of this idea of suffering in heaven, because that's another critique I, I tend to have of Christianity in heaven is that it seems like if there's no suffering in heaven, then there would be no free will. Um, but on the other hand, it, if I'm agreeing with you that there's suffering in heaven, I it, it brings a question to me why why earth would have to be created in the first place rather than we're all just in heaven where we'll inevitably be anyway. I think a lot of it is that we, even on Earth, we might even consider ourselves adults, but in like an eternal perspective, we here are still very infantile. And that us being on Earth is there's something that we are supposed to learn here. And I think that something is specific to the person. I feel like our lives are very specifically catered to something that we are supposed to be learning in this life to carry on with us into the next life, something that can only be learned here, living a mortal existence. Yeah, you, re you really do have a lot of uh, the LDS roots coming through, I feel like. So <laughs> it's funny to see. Um, cool, well... <laughs> I feel like, as far as reasoning goes, you're probably the most reasoned-out Christian I've ever talked to. Um, because specifically, like, presuppositionalists and, like, Christian apologists, they have good arguments. I'm not going to say that they're all bad. But it just... They, I don't think they ha tend to have the epistemic, uh, humble quality where, you know, essentially you hit the wall of faith... <clears throat> Um, anyway, I, now I'm going off on a tangent. So I want to get deeper into the metaphysics. Do you, do you think the God is basically all the omnis, omnipowerful or omnipotent, all that stuff? Well, ultimately, ultimately, I will say, I don't know. And I actually mm -hmm. think that being able to say, I don't know is a, um, really important quality when it comes to being able to assess your beliefs. Um, yeah. simply that there's a lot of there's a lot of unknowns when it comes to existentialism and i feel like it's perfectly okay to be able to say i don't know the entire nature of god and i would say it's even supported by the bible where you have things like your thoughts are not my thoughts neither are my ways your ways right i think it's kind of told to us that god is supposed to be uh, this this um um enigmatic character we are not we as mortals aren't don't really have the capacity to fully understand what it means, what what uh, what divinity means, what is deity, uh, and I feel yeah. like we ha we can kind of reason some of some of what deity. So, for instance, there's a lot of uh, Christian philosophy that really goes into what deity would be. <clears throat> okay. So it's, but really, that's all we can go off of. Uh, ultimately. I will say that I don't know right. the nature of 
is it is it does is it the trinitarian beliefs is it the non-trinitarian beliefs is it is he is he omniscient is he not ultimately i will say i don't know right and speaking as a as somebody who's who likes science i think i don't know is a perfectly fine answer oh it is i agree with you yeah, hundred percent. I I think every single one of us, no matter what we think we know or believe, we have to have this level of humble. Like, yeah, even in science, even our best theories, it's like it's not this one hundred percent known thing. It's just this is our best working theory, so we're putting most of our confidence in it, right? Um, so. Yeah, I'm with you there, and I appreciate the epistemic humbleness. Um, but I wonder if, you know, just for the sake of metaphysics, maybe we both could put on more our more assertive hats. <laughs> I mean, we both know each other yeah. to be humble. Um, so but if, if I were to say it's yeah. talking about, like, our best working theory, I would say that the best working theory of God is that of an omniscient being okay uh, simply because something to be able to um create the reality that we live in i feel like it's necessary that god would have to be an omniscient being uh capable of being outside of our reality if that makes sense right okay um well let me maybe let me just give you two of like I guess my biggest reasons for identifying as an atheist. And by the way, I, I actually prefer identifying as like a naturalist. Um, to me, I only use atheist in the sense of most of the religious versions I've heard of God doesn't make sense to me, but ultimately like you could paint me in, in the light of some sort of deist or, a Spinoza God, like universe type thing. I, I wouldn't go as far as to say that there's supernatural stuff. That's obviously why I would say I'm a naturalist, but, um, I'm not like strictly this materialist hedonist type atheist, I guess that's the biggest difference. Um, so yeah, one of these is more of an emotional, personal thing for me. And then the other one I think is a lot more logical and reasoned out. Um, so I'll, I'll just start with the emotional one, I guess. And that's the divine hiddenness argument. Have you ever heard of that? No, that's not, that's not one that I'm familiar with. I don't know. I might've heard it before, but I okay. probably not by name. Well, and I think there's like formal arguments for it, but like I said, for me specifically, it's more of the emotional side of it. My personal grievance, I guess, with God. And that is just... I don't know how many spiritual experiences you've had in your life, but I was also raised a Mormon and, you know, a, a big part of that religion is this burning in the bosom, like spiritual experience you're supposed to have. And so the divine hiddenness for me really started when I was a, a kid, like starting around 12 years old, I was, I was really suffering and, the only tool I was ever really taught to use was praying. And 
I I just remember countless nights where I'd be praying and, you know, even crying sometimes, asking for forgiveness and help to better my life, all this stuff. And essentially I got crickets. And that's so I guess that's why you would call it divine hiddenness is just these people who are genuinely seeking out God and spirituality, but can't it, it, it can't it won't work for them, I guess. Yeah, and I would um I would I would say personally in my own in my own experiences is that it's always very very subtle. At mm. least in my in my own experiences, it's not something grand, something big. I feel like a lot of a lot of a lot of people are always expecting this big moment that you always read about online where you had this um this this big wave of emotions that washes over you or something like that. I've never had something even nearly profound as that myself. Um, that's partly why I, I even fell into questioning the existence of God myself. But it was it, it wasn't until really diving into philosophy that I kind of ended up coming full circle back to Christianity. Uh, it was but but yeah, I could have easily easily gone the same way and and uh, become atheist myself in the same way. Yeah. But I, I actually kind of like how you talked about like the the like the naturalism because it actually actually it has given me something to think about with the native philosophy that we're learning about in class. Yeah. Uh, particularly where it talks about uh, people caring for the land and having to tend for the land, and that's our purpose here we care for the domain of the gods and in doing so we show piety and i actually yeah. rather like that point i thought that made a lot of sense that hey perhaps we're here to to also kind of take care of the house no that's keep, keep uh, working, working. that's literally exactly um what I was going to talk to you about when it came to kind of the side-by-side -side com comparison of the origin stories and whatnot. Um, so let's, let's just put that on hold for a second. Cause yeah. um, I want to just give you this other reasoning I had and uh, hopefully I can lay it out in a way that makes sense, but I, I feel like I might have to be explained I don't know. I guess when you're giving logical arguments, you got to be very careful. Um, so I'm sure you you know about the notion of like infinite regress, basically, um, and how at some point it seems intuitive that we have to have this non-contingent being in which everything else is contingent upon, right? Yeah. And that's often used um, as an argument for God. Um, basically the eternal, the eternal immortal presence that is self-created and self-sustained, whatnot. Um, so what I've kind of thought about is this notion that actually, if there is a God, it seems like he himself would still be bound to something above him, namely logic and morality, um, so the argument for logic would be essentially this, like, can God break the laws of logic? Um, and 
I, I, I don't know. I guess, what, what do you think? Do you think he could or not? I think that he set the laws of logic for for a reason, if you would. Um, so when, and this, this, goes, this goes a lot to science, so when the Big Bang occurred, within nanoseconds of it occurring, a lot of things were immediately set in stone right there. Things like mathematical constants, things like uh, all, all of the main basic forces, those were immediately set up like within nanoseconds of this occurring, the the fundamental forces and whatnot, and I f- I feel like that was kind of God setting the rules for how things how things work, and I feel like those rules are very important, and even He sees them like that. So okay. then, if, so uh, if I'm making sense here, <laughs> yeah, let me let me. Put it this way. So there's the idea in logic of um, non-contradiction, essentially, like A yeah. A is A and A is not B or whatever whatever the trope is. Yeah. Um, but basically, it's just that we can't have contradictions. And so essentially, I would ask, like, can God engage in a contradiction, for example, exist and not exist at the same time or create a universe and not well i guess that's not a dichotomy but you probably get what i'm saying yeah so i would say no no he can't because uh i am i thinking of that it was pascal that that said that if everything was possible nothing would ever occur um Mm. i'm probably getting that philosopher wrong i've but there, essentially, there's a philosophy that if absolutely everything were possible, that there were no logical rules, then nothing could happen. Everything would just be this chaotic noise of nothing. Right. And this is where, see, that this is exactly where I would argue that God is bound to something, namely logic. If If he cannot break the laws of logic then there is something binding for basically something he's not capable of doing. So that makes me feel as if he's actually contingent upon logic. Um, And then I, I would say similar goes for morality just because unless we're going to say morality is not objective and it's only God's opinion, if it's objective, then it seems like, well, I don't know. Morality is a little harder to argue for because I've heard people say that it's just his nature. Like, whatever his nature is, is the good objective nature. So maybe that one doesn't work as well. Well, I, I you actually do kind of have a point here. And I do believe that there is some kind of objective morality that God is more or less bound to. And a lot of this draws on the mythos of the of the Garden of Eden. And like I said, I feel like these myths are, despite not being actual events, I feel like, hey, maybe there's something we can learn here. So in this mythos, you have that um, you have that man has now fallen, and um, because because man has now fallen, God has to place a guardian over the tree of life. Because now if Adam were to partake in the tree of life, he would then now live forever and he wouldn't die, like God said, and that would have therefore made God a liar. 
which is why God had to place a defender over the tree of life. And I feel like a lot of that kind of shows us is that God himself is bound to some kind of moral code that he has to follow, um, some kind of objective morality, because he couldn't just say, well, well, I said it's fine, so it must be fine. It's, it's that, hey, he, he cannot be made to be a liar. So he had to do this. And I feel like that's what that mythos kind of shows us, that God has to have and there is an objective morality that binds it. Yeah. Yeah, and so <clears throat> essentially, I guess, the conclusion of my reasoning here gets to the, the point where if, if God is himself bound to something like logic and morality, then it seems like we don't necessarily need God in the equation. If, if, if the laws of logic and morality stand on their own, then it seems like we could just live in an eternal natural reality with those principles underlying it. Oh yeah, I see. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That could that does in fact make some sense there, and I would I would agree that that yeah, I can definitely see. I can definitely see that reasoning. Like I said, even um, I was drawn towards atheism for a time, but where I would. What I would say about that is that I believe in a God that's an author, someone who nevertheless has to has to build. So even though let me let me use an analogy here. Uh it's actually an analogy that I've used before and I rather like. I call it my uh my analogy of burned toast, if you would. Okay. So imagine that you have never experienced toast in any capacity at all. You don't know what it is. And let's say let's say you come over to my house for a visit and I invite you in and I offer you up a piece of slightly burned toast here. Uh, well, you've never experienced it. You're immediately going to be looking at it, poking and prodding at it, going like, man, what is this? Where did this come from? How did How did this come to be on my plate in front of me? And you're going to pick it up and look at it. But you might be able to figure out that that it's it's made by made by heat. You can make you make toast by applying heat to bread. And you yeah. go, okay. Well, there must be something in my kitchen that makes this toast. And you might be able to come to a conclusion that it's a machine that does it. Perhaps there's there's a machine that makes toast. But I feel like you could come to an equally logical conclusion that an almighty toast god is living in my kitchen and whenever i just pray for him for toast he gives me toast or that there's these magical toast fairies that just whimsically make this toast for me and i use this to kind of equate this to ultimately we'll never know right what what we'll never know what's in the kitchen until we step on the other side and uh, and and take a take a good long look at the humble toaster that's making the toast. <laughs> yeah. So I I definitely and, like that analogy. So where I where I tie this in is that is is that um perhaps God is is an end uh, is a is a um constructor if you would. Uh 
drawing drawing on on, an, on another analogy here just because you have a bunch of uh, a bunch of building materials doesn't necessarily mean you'll have a house uh, even if those materials are underneath the laws of being sturdy they'll they'll hold up to the elements things like that it still requires some intervention before you actually have a reality so if you would i would say that this logic and reasoning and these basic things are your are the basic materials whereas god himself is then the author taking those materials and crafting them into a reality maybe the the force as you will um it kind of reminds me of uh, have you taken ancient greek yet um ancient greek philosophy yeah um I have not I am rather familiar with the ancient Greeks. I'm more I'm more like the um I'm more like the postmodern philosophers more myself, but uh but I do I do I do like a lot of the ancient Greek philosophies. But yeah, continue. Yeah, it just reminds me of a pre-Socratic named Empedocles um who essentially said there's four basic elements and then there's two basic forces namely strife and love which pull apart and push together the four basic elements to create things so so that it almost sounds similar to that like there's these basic principles or materials and then god simply is the force that puts them together just like you mentioned with your analogy yeah yeah so yeah, that's that's a great way to put it. Is that God is kind of the um, the the constructor that builds it. He's the um, and and I'm, I think I'm going to use because it's quite fitting since we're talking about Christianity. He's the carpenter that makes the real the world <laughs> <Nice>. work. <laughs> maybe maybe on a maybe they were smarter writers than than you think, and they actually made Jesus a carpenter on purpose to to as a metaphor to him be the carpenter for the universe. Oh yeah, yeah. And um like like I I, I love all of the all of the little metaphors that you run into the Bible like that. Yeah. And I like how you brought up the authors of of the Bible because I feel like that's that's a real that that's actually really important to understand who wrote the book that you're reading, which surprised to most Christians it wasn't god <laughs> right um, right and that's actually one of the things that i really studied with christianity is like what are the origins of christian beliefs which is what it really led me to quantifying what's a myth what's a legend what's what scripture is that i um i ran into things like learning that hey did you know that the creation of the world story isn't even originally a jewish tradition the the whole Adam and Eve story, uh, thing, things like that that I learned that were adapted into the Jewish faith around 600 BC, right around the time where uh, Jerusalem was initially uh, destroyed by Babylon. That a lot most of most of your traditional Jewish beliefs come around that time. Uh, the oldest book in the Bible is actually Isaiah, and that's, I think he was around 800 BC, I could be wrong there. But if the world is supposedly 6,000 years old, man, they sure took a long time to start writing the book. 
Yeah. Um, which is which is one of the reasons why I did settle into to, into my belief in things like evolution, into like into hey maybe I should take science's story on the origin of life, the universe, and everything a little more seriously than I take this book written in around 600 BC, not even close to the start of everything. Yeah. Well, I yeah, I definitely appreciate you that perspective because you, I a lot of Christians like you said like hold so firmly to the Bible as like God's inerrant word and which is crazy because we know that men wrote it and simultaneously there's a a verse in the Bible that says like all men lie. So it's like how could you ever fully trust the writings of men just because they're claiming it to be God-inspired. You know, people have claimed that for centuries, thousands of years in many different religions. So, so yeah, that's, you know, so I, I, I say, <laughs> sorry, go ahead. I would, say that scripture, I would say that scripture is not necessarily a God-spoken or even God-mandated thing. I would say the best way to look at Scripture is it is man's record of our interactions with deity. Yeah. It's a record made by men, for men, about our interactions with deity. Yeah. Um, yeah, honestly, like, I can respect the and appreciate your version of Christianity. Like, if I were to ever believe again, it would definitely be this type of belief. Um, so let's let's go ahead and get into kind of side-by-side -side comparisons of like origin stories for native and indigenous peoples. Um, and I already can tell, because you're so different than most Christians I've talked to, I already can tell that you wouldn't be the type to say like, well, at least I think, to... Have you ever heard a Christian say we're in the world but not of the world? Yeah, yeah, things like the idea that Christians are here as a sojourner through this strange strangers in a strange land, I believe is as uh as the apostle Paul puts it. Right. Yeah, and that's and that's what I was going to say too is like it's not simply just people personally believing this. It is kind of backed up in the Bible. Um, like the verse you just mentioned, and then in Genesis, there's there's the whole verse that says, you know, humans have been given dominion over all the animals and the earth and everything, right? As in, as in, it's like a it's a means for us. Whereas in the in the native um, and indige indigenous philosophies they see the earth and living things as an ends in themselves, not simply just a means to be used like an object. Yeah, and I, I feel like a lot where a lot of that comes from is that they believe that unlike with Christianity, where we where the belief is that the earth is something outside of God's domain. God's domain is heaven. It's away from earth. Like I said, we are strangers in a strange land when it comes to Christianity. But when you get to the native philosophy, you get this interesting thing where humanity lives in the domain of the gods. Right. Uh, therefore, therefore, it's not really the earth is the, a means, something to be experienced, lived through, and then ultimately discarded in the end, which I actually think there's probably some further purpose 
for the earth, which is why I actually kind of have started adapting, uh, seeing, seeing where I could adapt to this, to this, um, new native philosophy that I'm getting is that perhaps the earth isn't just a means to an end, but is an ends in and of itself as well. That maybe the earth is more than just a strange land for us to travel through. Maybe it is something that, Hey, we are supposed to kind of take care of this. This is home after all to right. us in right now, right now, today it is home for us. Right. And, and I actually rather like the native idea that it is um, our sovereignty to our, our, our divine purpose to kind of care for this domain of the gods. We were placed here. We were given home. We should take care of it. Yeah. No, I, I um, essentially it'd be like engaging in a relationship like you would with another human. You're viewing like the earth as a partner like a relationship and this is actually kind of i i've been thinking about writing my paper for this class kind of on this because i think even even from a secular light um where the origin stories are just that they're just stories where you know in this framework we're not actually living with deities and the earth is in a spirit however it still is a good metaphor to teaching about engaging in relationship with the earth. Um, you know, cause have you read much of Kant? Uh, I'll admit Kant is actually one of the areas I actually have not read a lot Oof. of. You need to get, he's a big one. Um, yeah, yeah. I've been, I've been told that, yeah, I need to, I need to read <laughs> more of him. I've been reading into like, a lot of others besides cons i've been meaning to get around to him but yeah i actually haven't but continue well yeah so one of his basically he calls them duties and he when he's arguing for morality um one of like our basic duties to, to each other is this whole notion of treating each other as an ends and not just simply a means and um so that's why i was saying i just I think that that type of story, even if I personally as like a naturalist think it's just a metaphor, it still is useful to look at some of these objects as if they were a relationship. Um, sorry, I feel like I'm kind of going on a oh, tangent. I, I, so I am a little bit familiar with like Kantian ethics. Um, okay. The, the, yeah, that whole that whole we should treat we should treat our fellow man like means and not and not ends. So I I can kind of see that because in the in the native in in the native philosophy we're supposed is that humanity has a relationship like an actual exactly. relationship to the land and that a man is more or less the sum total of his relationships with everything including the land. Mm -hmm. um, so I could. So I, I definitely can see that, that, that there's a, um, that perhaps we should treat the land as a means or sorry, as an end of itself and not yeah. necessarily a means, not just and a that, means. That be, yeah. Yeah. So if we're getting into moral philosophy, I would say then, yes, that should be the moral stance to take when it comes to the land, that we should be treating the land as a means of itself and not just an, an end. Yeah. Um, 
Well, and and like even in our relationships with other humans, you know, we do we all we still do use people as means, but ultimately yeah. we value them as an end. So, you know, yeah. with my wife, you know, she likes me to do certain chores and stuff. She wants me to do things, so she's still using me as a means, but that's not all she sees me as. She values the underlying person in in myself um so yeah it's not to say that we can't use the land in fact quite the opposite we we use it engaged in a relationship um kind of like this give and take and yeah ultimately i think what i was trying to get at with the whole like secular framework about it is ultimately like we're born of the earth like we come from directly from the earth it directly sustains and maintains us. And so even if we don't believe it's actually an entity, it seems more preferred to treat it as if it is um, and, and engage in a relationship. Yeah, like I really like the, the native idea of Mother Earth. Yeah. Uh, she gave birth to us. We are literally made out of pieces of this rock that we live on. Right. Uh, so I feel like it's it's an important that it that is that it is an important thing that maybe we should uh, not necessarily because you you brought up that we hey the land is still here and we do uh, need to use it in in instances like subsistence. But I feel like the 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 direction we should take is we should become more or less partners with the land. Yeah, we're not. We're not here just to take and use the land until there's nothing left to be used before moving on to the next plot of land. But rather, we should be cultivating and caring for the land that we live in as much as it's cultivating and caring for us. Right. Well, and so, I mean, we've beat that dead horse pretty good, but I... I... Ultimately, this is kind of the critique I have with like strictly materialistic atheism, secularism is it seems like the, when material is all that matters, it's like it seems like that's going to put everyone in this selfish boat to get whatever they can, accrue whatever wealth they can and like suck the earth dry, essentially. Um and, you know, for as many crimes as the old Christians committed when coming to colonize the Americas, it, it wasn't just the fault of Christianity. It was, you know, secularism has its role, just Western philosophy and science in general, this industrialization of, of the earth. Yeah, and those, those materialistic views can uh, kind of be seen in in Europe before uh, before the colonization of the New World. Uh, I, I don't know how much you know about the history right before colonization. Um, I, I, depends what you're specifically talking about. So colonization basically saved Europe, if you would. Um, I don't necessarily mean that as a good thing. Um, Europe had pretty much cut down all of its forests, it's undergoing famine after famine, and they're really mm -hmm. living in this way that 
consumes the land. Uh, that's why there's a lot of movements nowadays to kind of revive the natural woodlands because those natural woodlands don't exist anymore. Okay. Yeah, I didn't know that. that... And, and that's because it was it was a kind of tradition that to consume the land that is here and then just just keep consuming it until there's nothing left without any uh, which is why when we do get the when the Europeans did show up on the new world and they see this land that had been cultivated by the people that live there and it's this lush thriving place they all they see it as is ooh more stuff right rather than thinking that hey perhaps this is another way that we could have been living yeah yeah and that's you know i was kind of getting at like <clears throat> with the secular state um this one of these last papers we read really enlightened me on how you know it used to be basically god has the divine authority who and he then grants that authority to the monarchs who then dictate the state right um but yeah, it was always what's that oh yeah like the mandate of heaven if you would right yeah so there was always this divine authority underlying the state essentially but even our modern like because i would consider our government fairly secular even though most of our people in government are religious um i think the way we operate is well it's supposed to be secular in my opinion but anyway the whole point of bringing it up is that it's not that the divine authority has gone away. It's just over time transferred to the state. So essentially they've turned God's divine authority into the, you know, basically the government being God, they have the ultimate authority. Yeah, that's absolute authority. And as, as just a slight side tangents, there's actually a book I would recommend when it deals with things like uh, religious people in the government. Um, it's a book called The Privilege of Being Banal. Um, and it specifically talks about Catholicism in France, how it kind of is afforded this privileged position, it, despite the fact that they are in a secular government. I really would recommend it. Uh, but side tangent aside... Uh, Wait, yeah, I would, I'm, I would I'm sorry. I was... I was like kind of googling and reading. Can you briefly explain again what it's what it's about? Oh, okay. So basically, uh, because all of these relig all of the religions are banal, if or basically, um, uh, it's a good way to put it is is mundane. They don't really matter. They're not as in, kind of in the foreground, uh, but they're not really that way if you would it's um so for instance in with catholicism in france people say oh we are a secular society we're supposed to be secular but in reality all of the people in power are catholic so the policies that get passed are pro-catholic and generally tend to be anti-muslim because there is a sizable Muslim population in France, um, and this this is this has kind of caused a lot of outrage between the Muslims and the state itself, because the state is ran by Catholics. 
But because they still hold on to this idea that, yes, we are a secular, we are a 100% secular society, what happens is Catholicism gets afforded this kind of um, privilege by being unimportant. Which is all. Which, if you if you read the book, it really outlines and it really shows through actual examples of things that the author experienced while in France. Okay. That there is this there is this kind of phenomena of privileged banality, and honestly, after you read this book, living here in Utah, I see the same exact same thing going on here. I could even see it in the federal government when it comes to Christianity, because yeah. most. The federal government are Christian. So is it is it essentially like it, it's almost like there's this front of secularism, even though underlying it, the majority of people passing laws are religious and are going to clearly have a religious bias when it comes to passing the laws? Yeah, and it's more like just that's just the culture that they were raised in. They were raised in a Christian culture. Therefore, to them, what's right is what's Christian. Uh, and it, it's the, the same kind of thing happens in, in France in this book, is that what's right to the people there is Catholicism. Therefore, you have a lot of these, um, uh, you have things that are not, on, not only things that are Muslim in nature that get sidelined and, and marginalized, but even things that are actually secular get marginalized and pushed to the side. And the author really illustrates this because uh, she was observing a um, an, an art gallery. And they had some of the works of art that were actually just truly secular pieces of artwork. But because they were secular and they weren't didn't have some kind of Catholic undertone, it was hated. Mm. It was even it was even vandalized at one point. Um because it because it it wasn't it it didn't fall in line with that culture of Catholicism that France is built around, but um, so even even the truly secular was was more or less spurned by them. So you can kind of see that with the with even in the U.S. government, where even oh, yeah. things that are actually truly secular can be spurned because it's 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 really not the it's not. It's it's against the Christian way. It's because of like the hegemony, essentially, right? <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. yeah um, so the. Uh... Oh, go ahead. So that's that's what the that's what the book really talks about. It was actually a book that we read in an anthropology class I had last semester. Really interesting read. Yeah, I'm gonna definitely add it to my very very long list of books. A very very long list. <laughs> I I have I have that. <laughs> Um, but essentially, you know, it kind of actually put Christianity in a, a new light for me in our country, specifically progressive Christianity, because it seems like potentially if we didn't have progressive Christians, we may have never actually passed laws like gay marriage, equality, um, you know, Roe v. Wade type stuff, like things like that, because it it seems like we yeah we have to have the support of kind of this group of progressive christians to to enact things like that 
Yeah, and this, like I said, this goes back to that that privileged banality. Is if it's really these Christians that are in charge, the only way anything happens is really is 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 not necessarily has to be through them. It's just that um, it will have to have they will have to have an influence on it, and that's it's more or less something that happens organically. It's not something that's really right. Unintended. This is what happens. Like I said, the author kind of calls it a bit of a phenomenon. Yeah. Which, yeah, that makes sense to me that it's not like, well, <clears throat> I do think that there still is always going to be some level of propaganda and whatnot within a a country to try and, I think right now there's a hard push to make Christians a lot more kind of this right-wing conservative authoritarian um <laughs> I never got that. I never, I never really understood that. That oh, you're Christian. Well, you must, you must be this right wing authoritarian. And I'm like, that's not what I. That's not what I believe at all. And it's like, oh, you must, you must hate. So, like one of the one of the assumptions that I always get whenever I tell people that I'm Christian is they're always like, oh, you must, you must be, just be some kind of homophobic transphobe. Yeah. You hate people. <laughs> no, it's not me at all. In fact, I believe the exact opposite. I believe that one of our biggest duties in life is to love our neighbor. Right, which so is it... <laughs> ultimately the number one, you know, Christ was asked in the Bible the what the number one law was, and it was loving God and loving your neighbor like God. So, yeah, it it, it doesn't make sense to me either, and it's it really is refreshing to talk to Christians like you because— you don't have to be gay to love gay people. Like it's not, it shouldn't affect you whatsoever. No. And see, like what I'll say, what I'll what I'll say about that is that yes, do yes, Christians do believe homosexuality be a sin. However, Christians believe that there are a lot of sins out there. Right. And um, just, uh, the, the way the way the way I like to put it is, don't judge somebody. Yeah, uh, and I actually had this happen. Uh, had this happen in a um, in uh, in in a church that I that I um, went to once upon a time. Now this happened after I had left the church, but I did I I did hear about this story of of a man who who he he had quit smoking as part of as as part of um, joining the church. And he was in the process of quitting. It's just, it's which is a very hard process. But he would come into church smelling like tobacco, and nobody would really associate with them. Well, it was one day that his son said to everybody there, he said, "If I could smell your sins, I wouldn't want to sit next to you either." And basically, that's that's my stance on it. Is I feel like it's a bigger sin. To be a jerk, yeah. To burn somebody because of their sins, and and that's where I get into like the that we will be judged by our own measure, whatsoever length we judge other people with. Guess what? That's how that that's 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 your measure for being judged yourself. In essence, that it's not my place to judge anybody, despite the fact that they may be a sinner. But that that's not the point. I'm not I'm not I'm not the judge. I'm just another sinner like them. So uh, 
would you would you mind if I push back on the idea of gay being gay as a sin in general? Um and and just by the way, we've yeah. gone we've gone over an hour at this point and I like to respect people's time. So if you gotta go I've got about fifteen more minutes here. Fifteen? So. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah, so I you know, I, first of all, I, I I definitely appreciate the perspective that no matter somebody's sin or troubles or whatnot, we ought to love love each other, uh, support each other, all this stuff, not judge each other. Um, but ultimately, the idea of being gay as being a sin still in itself, I think, can be harmful. And it's because... When I think of a sin, something like, I don't know, me being lustful or, you know, gluttonous over and uh, whatever I'm doing, lying, stealing, these are all things that aren't inherently just part of who I am, but rather behaviors that I can choose to control. And I... Yeah, behaviors that can be fixed if you would. And yeah, that's where... that's that is That is actually a criticism against the whole... Uh, being gay being a sin that I actually do do recognize as a valid as a valid criticism. Like I said, the only the only basis I have for homosexuality being a sin is the fact that that is that's that's dictated in the Bible. That's really the only basis I have for that. Right. Well, and if if I were to find out later that hey, it's not a sin, then yeah, I'd one hundred percent change uh, change my belief on it. Yeah, and. Yeah, I've heard some Christians even say that like being gay in itself isn't a sin, but just the actual act of being sexually active or whatever is is the sin. Um but yeah, I just I don't know. It it seems weird that God would assign a sin to something that he also creates within some of his humans like because all the other behaviors all the other sins that's not just created in you like you you can actively choose actively but yeah, yeah. I, I, I see what you mean like 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 i said this is these are these are things that a lot of it is all i will just say i don't know yeah um because, uh, like I said, with the the my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. Ultimately, I will not one hundred percent know. Right. Uh, like I said, my my idea on what I should and should not do is is that that that's kind of more or less um, dictated within the Bible, and I live to that as kind of like a. This is how this is kind of like an ideal type for now. This is how I should kind of live my life until I come across a better way. Like 100%, if I came across a better way to live than Christianity, I would 100% do that. And there probably is. But well, I don't think I will encounter that until I die. Yeah. Well, and and like I already said, like I I definitely appreciate already the fact that you like, you know, you don't want to judge people for their sins either way. Because, um, you know, I would say, like, I I think I share more, impor like, more important things in common with progressive Christians than I do conservative atheists. So, it 
ultimately this doesn't matter is what I'm saying. We're, we're, we just happen to be talking about the metaphysics and about sin and stuff. So, um, and I think ultimately like our sins, what will not, they will not matter in the end. Otherwise, why did there have to be the divine sacrifice? Why did there have to be the, um, why did there have to be the atonement of our sins through a mediator? We, if our sins will matter in the end where ultimately those will be uh when when in in 10,000 years in 20,000 years and millions upon billions of years later will our sins here really have mattered well and that's uh, that's another kind of weird thing for me to think about too because then it's like you know, you know, people like Hitler say, like, does his sins ultimately not matter? He's he's now one of God's saved children. Well, and that's where we get that's why that's this is why I, I going going back to the Mormon theology being that of a theological genius in the sense of multiple places for uh, in the end is people are going to want to be where they're happy and the whole idea of there being multiple places for those people so in uh, using mormonism as an example they believe in the three separate kingdoms and there's actually very clear criteria as to who goes where yeah you have the very bottom which these are people that have fallen from grace and these are people that i would say are happy living li living their lives and these these would be guys like Hitler. These are guys that delight in killing people by the millions. He's not going to want to be in heaven. Yeah. Well, that's he's going to want to be there <laughs> with everybody else who's going to be who's who's going to who's going to be stuck there. And then you have the next one, which is these are people that are really moral people these are these are the cream of the crop good people but in the end they decided not to accept jesus as their savior and i think that there is an opportunity in the afterlife to do so it, it would a, be unjust not to be that's it and that's another mormon ideal too so yeah because yeah. that that just makes sense Right, like like I said, I, even 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 if I don't consider him the prophet of the restoration, I do consider him to be a theological genius. <laughs> well, you recognize <laughs> these plot, you recognize these plot holes, if you would, right. in the um, in in the Christian theology, and says, "Hey, maybe this is more logical that there's multiple places for people. So even people who live their lives in sin and they they delight in that sin, even these guys have a place to go." Well, I've said it before, and I'll say it again until someone else can show me otherwise. And it sounds like Chris agrees with me that the Mormon theology is absolutely the most compassionate version of Christianity. Although I don't think necessarily the church is moral in itself, the or actual organization. But just simply, yeah. the theology is the most compassionate version. The people are very different. I actually, um, I actually had a had a had a a, a joke told me by one who who was a she she was a Mormon herself, and I thought this was hilarious, which was that Mormons are a lot like manure, if you would. If when you spread them out, 
and you kind of mix them in with people. It's really good. It really it really helps kind of make things better. But when you have them all together in one pile, they kind of stink. <laughs> you know what? Those are probably the best last words we could leave on. So unless you have anything else you wanted to add. No, I think that's a I think that's a, that's a good bombshell to end on. A little a little yeah, chuckle for everybody. That's a great thing to end on. I super appreciate you coming, man. It's been a, a great chat. Oh yeah, yeah. Like if you want if you want to do another one of these, yeah, just let me know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, keep an eye on the events I make because in the past, um, I've had people like in the audience and whatnot listening, and towards the end, I'll bring. I'll bring other people up onto the stage to ask the guest questions and whatnot. So if, if you're ever just around and you notice I'm doing one, then hop on in. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm, I'm glad I could uh, kind of give this uh, alternate view of Christianity, this sort of unaffiliated Christianity that doesn't really have anyone to align with, but nevertheless has to believe in something. Yeah. <laughs> yep. It's almost, it's almost just out of pra practicality and uh, on some level and for your own personal well-being, I suppose. Yeah, basi basically. So but, hopefully cool. it gives another perspective to people who maybe think about uh, give, give them another perspective to maybe try and try Christianity again. See if you can come up with your own perspective yourself. Well, if. At the very least, I think it at least gives people a refreshing account because in our media world, it seems like a lot of the Christians we see are very hateful. So if at least that, it's just a refreshing experience. Oh, yeah, for sure. So, uh, all right. Yeah, Thank yeah. you. It was good to be right. in, part, in part of this. Yeah, thanks again. We'll see you in class. Yeah, see you later. All right, bye.